When Jennifer Dulos went missing, her friends and neighbors in the rich, supposedly safe community of New Canaan, Connecticut, didn't know what to think. She dropped her five kids off at school that morning and then just disappeared. She didn't show up to appointments later that day. She didn't answer calls or contact anyone. She was just gone. Her estranged husband, Fotis Dulos, made it clear that he thought she disappeared on purpose. He compared it to a real life Gone Girl story, but her friends and family never believed she would intentionally leave her kids. They insisted from the beginning, this was murder. Who could have killed the gorgeous, sweet mother of five and why? I'm Chris, and this is my wife, Amy, and you found True Crime Recaps, the only podcast bringing you twice the crime in half the time. Thanks for that classy intro, babe. <laughs> you got it. Anytime. In this episode, Chris and I are teaming up to recap a developing case for you, the disappearance and assumed murder of Connecticut Mama 5, Jennifer Dulos. And stick with us to the end because we promised you twice the crime in half the time, right? Which means you're getting two recaps today. And... It's my turn to tell you a story, you right? got it. Okay. And I've got one ready for you that you're not going to believe is true, but I promise you it is. One of our listeners sent it in. After the Dulos recap, I'm going to tell you about the tragic murder of Bianca Devins. The guy who killed her wanted to live stream her death, but instead he settled for posting pictures of her body online. What? Ew. But before you recap that story, let's get into the developing case of Jennifer Dulos. Yes. All right. So it all started with her disappearance on May 24th, 2019. She had a few appointments that day, but when she didn't show up to any of them and no one could get a hold of her, her friends called the police. The first strange thing they discovered was Jennifer's car. They found it abandoned on the side of the road near a local park. Hmm. So they brought out the dogs, helicopters, you know, all the manpower and searched 300 acres, but there was no sign of Jennifer. That's when they went to her house and found evidence of her blood in several places in the garage. It looked like someone had tried to clean it up. Now, immediately, they focused the investigation on her estranged husband, Fotis. He was a luxury home builder from Greece. Jennifer met him in college, and the two of them were married in 2004. She was his second wife, and there may have been some overlap with his first wife. Why are you pointing to me and say first wife? <laughs> Over the next 13 years, they had five kids together. Then in March 2017, she discovered that he was laying the groundwork for a potential wife number three, Michelle Traconis. She was a businesswoman from Argentina that Fotis met at a ski resort. When Jennifer found out about their relationship, she took her five kids from their house in Farmington, Connecticut, and rented another slightly less giant house about 70 miles away in New Canaan. Then she filed for divorce. From then until the day she disappeared, two years later, Jennifer and Fotis were mired in vicious custody battles and divorce proceedings, detailed across hundreds of courtroom documents. Things between them got so bad that Jennifer actually hired bodyguards at one time. She claimed that she was scared of Fotis. She said his temper was frightening, especially because he could put on like a calm face to, to hide his 
true self from mm-hmm. everyone. And it's so odd because it was such a public battle going on. He couldn't have been surprised when people started looking at him and thinking, oh, did, do you have something to do with your wife's disappearance? Mm-hmm. When he came into the police station on May 25th to answer questions, the police took his cell phone and got a search warrant to download information from that phone and a second cell they found belonging to him. Among other things, they found tracking data that led them to surveillance footage, and together it all pointed to an unexplainable coincidence. Around 7 p.m. on the very same day Jennifer was reported missing, it appeared that Fotis spent half an hour making his way down a busy street in Hartford, going from garbage can to garbage can, throwing items away. When they took a closer look, they identified someone else in the truck, a woman that looked like his live-in girlfriend, Michelle. When police searched the route they took, they found garbage bags filled with sponges, mops, zip ties, and the shirt and bra Jennifer was wearing the day she disappeared. They were all stained with her blood. They also found something else that pointed to Fotis. Altered license plates from cars that used to be registered to him. They were stuffed into a FedEx box that was then shoved into a storm drain. And in the words of the police, what they found wasn't necessarily evidence of murder, but obviously it definitely pointed to something had gone on. And when they went to question Fotis and Michelle, they were gone. They tracked them down to a bed and breakfast in Avon, Connecticut, and arrested them for hindering prosecution and tampering with evidence. They both pled not guilty and bonded out. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile... We're not quite done with those garbage cans in question. The police eventually got reports that before they could search those cans, a homeless man may have found a bag containing a bloody pillow and a bloody knife. Now, we don't know if it's true or what kind of incriminating evidence that might have been on them because that guy doesn't know what happened to the pillow and he treated the knife for crack. Oh. Yeah. So they have no idea. But in the arrest warrant for photos published on WTNH.com, it states that police believe that Bloody Pillow was one of the small camping pillows they discovered missing from Jennifer's garage. Well, at this point in the investigation, police had a lot of what lawyers call circumstantial evidence pointing in the direction of her estranged husband. But a major piece of the puzzle was still missing. Were they supposed to be looking for Jennifer's body or was she still alive somewhere? In an interview with Dateline for an episode called The Disappearance of Jennifer Dulos, Fotis insisted he didn't do anything to Jennifer. He had a different theory about what might have happened to her. He suggested that she might have staged her own disappearance mm-hmm. in order to frame him for her murder and make sure he never got custody of their kids, which is pretty much, you know, the core plot of that hit movie book, Gone Girl. Mm-hmm. To back up his theory, his lawyer pointed out a manuscript Jennifer wrote in college before Gone Girl was ever published. He said it had a similar plot and involved a woman's disappearance. However, her friends and family said the whole theory was ridiculous. Not only was that manuscript nothing like Gone Girl or Jennifer's own disappearance, but she would never leave her kids without a word. And the police kept working her case like foul play was involved. Then they got another piece of circumstantial evidence handed to them. This one came from a man who worked for Fotis. He claimed that Fotis borrowed his truck around the time Jennifer went missing. The very same truck that police saw on surveillance dumping garbage bags in Hartford the night of May 24th. When he got his truck back on May 29th, Fotis had an odd request. He told the guy to replace the back seats and get rid of them somewhere they wouldn't be found. He also told him not to go to the police because he only had a green card and he might get into trouble. But instead of doing what he was told... 
the man saved the seats to give to the police. When they tested them, they found Jennifer's DNA. That man also told police that Fotis had been in contact with another item of his, his cell phone. On May 28th, he asked to see it in order to check the employee call log. Right. At least that's what Fotis said to him, to get him to hand it over. But when police did a data dump on his phone, they discovered some deleted records. The web history was gone from 2017 through May 27th, 2019. Mm. The searches from April 2019 to May 27th were deleted. And the call logs from May 25th through May 26th were gone. Well, by that time, the police had a working theory about what happened to Jennifer on May 24th. They believe Fotis rode his bike to her house and waited to attack her in her garage after she dropped the kids off at school that morning. According to this quote about the investigation, police believe the crime and cleanup happened between 8.05 and 10.25 a.m. that morning. He then allegedly zip-tied Jennifer, put her back in her car, and drove her away from her house to an undiscovered location where he disposed of her body and then eventually left her car where it was found by the park. But Fotis said he had an alibi for that time period on May 24th. He was at home in Farmington, Connecticut with his girlfriend, Michelle. According to the arrest affidavit, when his home office was searched, they found something odd in the trash can. Notes describing exactly what he and Michelle were doing on May 24th and 25th, down to the last detail. According to an excerpt published by WFMZ.com, these notes included statements like, 8.12 a.m., back home, 8.30 a.m., cook an omelet, and like on and on that day like that with the exception of throwing things away in Hartford on May 24th. <laughs> that trip was not part of what police are calling the alibi scripts, mm, a man. term all the lawyers are objecting to, yeah. by the way. At first, Michelle backed Fotis up. But by her third police interview in June, they'd broken up and she admitted she hadn't actually seen him from the time she woke up at 6.40 a.m. until around noon on May 24th. When they got information from his phone that morning, they noticed his alarm went off at 4.20 a.m. and was shut off just a minute later. Allegedly, Michelle also told police that, yes, that was her and Fotis on the surveillance video in Hartford that night, but she didn't know he, what he was throwing away. She said she was on her cell phone during that time period and was just in the truck with him. And when police pointed out that her former boyfriend had possibly made her an accomplice to Jennifer's murder... She supposedly said, I hate him because of that. Just like, yeah. Yeah, really. No kidding. The notes police referred to as the alibi scripts also mentioned a business meeting between Fotis and his attorney, Kent Mawinney. Just to clarify, Kent isn't the attorney representing Fotis in Jennifer's case. Kent is actually one of the suspects in the case. He was arrested in early January 2020 for conspiracy to commit murder. On the same day, Fotis was arrested for murder and kidnapping. And Michelle was also arrested on charges of conspiracy to commit murder. So just to recap the recap so far, Jennifer Dulos was missing, but police believed they had enough evidence to say she was murdered. To this day, her body has yet to be found. All three suspects plead not guilty to the charges, and Fotis was able to bond himself out of prison to sit tight and wait for the trial in the comfort of his own home. We need to take a quick break before we go too much further into this story. And trust me, you are not going to believe what happens next. Don't go anywhere. True Crime Recaps will be right back. Welcome back. So you're probably wondering why Kent Mawinney, Fotis' lawyer, was arrested in connection with this case. 
Now, at first, police believed he was somehow involved because the alibi notes, as they're calling them, showed a meeting between him and Fotis the morning Jennifer disappeared. But statements from Fotis, Michelle, and Kent about, like, who saw who that morning are allegedly inconsistent. But beyond that, you have to hear this. According to the arrest warrant on May 18th, two men were walking in the woods, which serve as the grounds for this exclusive hunting club in East Granby, Connecticut. Mm. So to give you an idea where that is, it's about two hours away from where Jennifer lived, but less than an hour from Hartford in Farmington, where Fotis lived. So as these men were walking in the woods, they came across some disturbed earth. And when they looked closer, they saw something bizarre. Yeah. Two grates that looked like they came off of a barbecue grill were covering a hole two feet wide, six feet long, and three feet deep. Inside the hole was a blue tarp and a couple of bags of lime. The grates were obviously covered with some leaves and foliage to hide them. Now, these guys immediately thought they were looking at a human gravesite, minus the body. But at the time, there was nothing on the news to make them think that what they found was part of any other case. So they just took the grates off and made sure the hole was obvious so no one would fall in. And they walked away. But one of those members couldn't stop thinking about what they'd found. A few days later, on May 22nd, they went back to check on it and discovered that someone had removed the bags of lime they'd found. The grave was half full of rainwater, but still they hadn't heard of anyone missing, so they didn't really know what to do about it. They left, but they couldn't stop wondering. In early June, they went back out there and found something almost as shocking as the hole. No hole. Someone had filled it into the point where it would be impossible to tell it was even there in the first place. Yeah, a few weeks later, they reported this hole to the police, and they came out and dug down about two feet, but eventually they had to stop because I guess it was bad weather or something. Then, in August, the man who'd found the hole in the first place was at the club when another member happened to mention that Kent Mowinney had been questioned in connection with Jennifer's disappearance. And that's when this member made a surprising connection. Only a handful of members have access to the keys to get onto the property. Mm. At the time, Kent wasn't a member, but he was part of the founding committee years earlier. And in March 2019, he allegedly called to ask about renewing his membership. And while he was on that phone, on that conversation, he was told where the spare keys to get onto the grounds was hidden. According to the arrest warrant, he never followed up on the membership after that conversation. When police searched his phone, they traced cell pings back to towers servicing the grounds of the gun club on March 29th from 1 to 1.45 p.m., then again on May 31st at 11.04 p.m. They also found something else interesting, something that supports the police allegation that Kent met with Fotis the night before Jennifer went missing. His cell pinged at Fotis's house around 5 p.m. on May 23rd. That same night, Fotis had a dinner party, but had to leave for a few minutes to allegedly get more meat to cook. But according to the cell phone data outlined in the arrest warrant, before he went to the store, he went to another house he owned in Farmington. He stayed there for seven minutes, but when questioned about it, Kent allegedly said he didn't remember seeing or speaking to Fotis the night before Jennifer disappeared or on the day she went missing. He did tell police that he fell down the stairs on May 25th and broke his cell phone and gave himself a concussion, which meant his memory might be hazy and explains why he had to replace a cell phone. Hmm. Well, let's fast forward to January 2020. 
Kent, Michelle, and Fotis have all been arrested in connection with Jennifer's murder, but only Fotis managed to bond himself out of prison at that time. He had an ankle monitor, but then he was put on strict house arrest after he was caught dismantling a memorial for Jennifer that was set up near his house. Maybe don't dismantle the memorial of the wife that you're accused of murdering. I don't know. (laughs) That's a good idea. On January 28th, he got a call to report to court at noon that day for an emergency hearing about his $6 million bond. Fotos was afraid he might be headed back to prison to join his two alleged accomplices behind bars. When he didn't show up, police went to his house and found him passed out behind the wheel of his car in a closed garage with a hose hooked up to the tailpipe, a suicide attempt. But paramedics were able to find a heartbeat and took him to a nearby hospital. But he ended up dying only two days later. A note was found and published on WFSB.com. Here are a few excerpts from it. It starts, if you are reading this, I am no more. I refuse to spend even an hour more in jail for something I had nothing to do with. If it takes my head to end this, so be it. He goes on to say he's innocent and so are Michelle and Kent. After his suicide, the legal battles began. Would his death mean that the case was dropped? Or would his alleged accomplices be going to trial anyway? As of now, the answer is yes. They are pushing to put Michelle and Kent on trial. Prosecutors allege that Fotis had a lot of reasons to want Jennifer dead, and he turned to his then-girlfriend and his close friend to help him. With Jennifer gone, he could put an end to their contentious divorce and custody battles. He was also $7 million in debt, Mm. and there was no relief in sight. And one of the people he owed money to was Jennifer's mom. In 2018, she filed a lawsuit against him for almost $3 million, money which Fotis claimed was a gift to help him start his business. She was also trying to foreclose on the house he and Michelle were living in. It belonged to her. She'd been paying the mortgage on it. But when her daughter moved out and started divorce proceedings, she didn't want to pay for the house he was living in, and apparently he couldn't pay the mortgage either. As we tape this, Michelle and Kent are out on bond awaiting a trial date to be scheduled. Michelle's lawyer is trying to get the venue changed and filing motions for discovery files he says are missing. Kent, meanwhile, appears to be trying to make a deal in exchange for testimony against Michelle. According to Assistant State's attorney Daniel Cummings, published in the Stanford Advocate, Kent will be among the state's witnesses if Michelle Traconis' case does go to trial. Well, Michelle's attorney called Kent nothing but like an unreliable jailhouse informant who was trying to exonerate himself from Mm. any misconduct. In a video interview with the police, he allegedly told them that Michelle and Fotis tried to solicit him in a conspiracy to do away with Jennifer Dulos. They're both pleading not guilty. And again, this case is still developing and all charges are alleged until the trial is completed. Hmm. Alleged. Alleged. Meanwhile, where is Jennifer's body? Police have searched multiple sites all over Connecticut, including that grave-like hole at the gun club, and they haven't found anything. One of those properties was the empty home Fotis owned, which was only a couple of miles from his house in Farmington. The one that featured prominently in the arrest warrant timeline of the days before and after Jennifer's disappearance. They even brought in a specialist they referred to as the bone finder. Based on his recommendations, they dug up earth in five areas and used ground penetrating radar to try and find some evidence of her. But with no luck so far. This is such a bizarre case, and it is far from over. What was the most surprising thing for you when you were researching this case, babe? Uh, Well, I thought the accusations against Kent, his close friend and lawyer, were pretty shocking. (laughs) And actually, 
I have something to add to that part of the story. Oh, please do. Kent was also in the middle of a contentious divorce with his wife. It was filed in January 2019, and that same month, Kent was arrested for an alleged sexual assault against her. She got a restraining order against him in February 2019. When Jennifer went missing in May, she went to the police, and in a sworn affidavit quoted on NBCConnecticut.com, she said Fotis was calling her on behalf of Kent. He told her he wanted to help her fix the marriage if he could. Five days before Jennifer disappeared, she met with Fotis but told police she felt like she was being baited and was uncomfortable with the way that he kept on inviting her back to his house. She believed Fotis was indebted to Kent and was working on his behalf to get rid of her. She said she thought Kent wanted her dead. Holy smoly. That is horrifying. Mm-hmm. And you got to wonder, like, what was who was that grave actually for? The one they found at the gun club, you know, yeah. that Kent had that connection to? I mean, listening to her instincts might have saved her life. Who knows? It's just it's so shocking because you can never just think someone could be capable of that. I know. You know, even yeah. though there are court documents from Jennifer saying that she was afraid of Fotis, according to her, he used to tell her sick fantasies he had about taking revenge on people he thought had wronged him. But I mean, even with all of that, I'm sure she never would have thought, right, that he could have murdered her. Allegedly. 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 (laughs) Anyway, so you said you had a recap to tell us, right? Sorry? Okay. So is this another alleged crime or has the guilty party actually been tried and convicted? Well, uh, as promised, yes, we have one more quick recap for you. And it's my turn to tell it. This story comes to us thanks to listener Gina Rule from Spokane, Washington. This is the story of 17-year-old Bianca Devins and 21-year-old Brandon Clark. Now, on July 13, 2019, Bianca and Brandon had tickets for a concert in Queens, New York. They lived upstate about four hours away. She lived with her parents in Utica, and Brandon was about an hour away in Bridgeport, New York. The two of them had met a few months earlier on social media, then became friends in real life. Well, Bianca was friends with Brandon, but he wanted more from her. We know that because the concert in Queens didn't go as well as Brandon hoped. Instead of defining their relationship that night, Bianca kissed another guy at the show. But Brandon wasn't going to let it just go. Late that night in the car, on their way back upstate, Bianca was sleeping in the back seat when Brandon woke her up and told her to get into the front passenger seat so they could discuss that kiss. (laughs) Great. He had his phone set up on the dashboard, ready to record their conversation, and he had a black-handled butcher knife ready and waiting next to him if their talk didn't go the way he wanted. Oh, my God. You guessed it. Bianca told Brandon some version of, I don't feel the same way about you as you do about me. And he cut her throat with his knife. Oh, my God, no. Then he started posting pictures of what he'd done. Oh, The first one went up on Discord around 6 in the morning. It showed Bianca's bloodied arm and a message to her followers. The next stream of pictures and messages went out on Brandon's Instagram, and viewers started calling police to report the murder they were seeing online. Now, at the same time, Brandon was making his intentions for July 14, 2019 clear. He sent goodbye messages to his family and friends. He changed his Instagram bio to reflect that day as his date of death. When he made it back to Bianca's hometown of Utica, New York, he came to a stop on a dead-end street near her high school. 
On the ground, a short distance away from his car, he spray-painted the words, May you never forget me on the pavement. Then he wrapped Bianca's body in a blanket and laid her on the ground near the message he'd written. He covered her with a green tarp from his car and laid down next to her with his knife and his phone. Oh, my God. He started making calls. He called 911 to tell them he was about to complete the suicide part of the murder-suicide. He left his grandma a goodbye message. He called his brother. He called his aunt. He called a guy he looked up to. And they all called 911, too. When the police got to his location, he tried cutting his own throat. Then he took selfies as the cops tried to wrestle the knife away from him to save his life. Keep going. Okay. Bizarrely, that whole scene must have felt familiar to Brandon. His own father did something very similar to his mother. When Brandon was 12 years old, he saw his dad hold his mom hostage at knife point for 10 hours because he thought she was cheating on him. He threatened to cut her throat and kill himself with a black-handled butcher knife. Oh, my God. No way. Unlike his son, the SWAT team was able to take him down before he killed her. Crazy. At first, Brandon pled not guilty to Bianca's murder. But his lawyers convinced him to spare her family the trial. And in February 2020, he changed his plea to guilty. He was supposed to be sentenced in April, but the COVID pandemic postponed it. While he had time to think in June 2020, he tried to change his plea back to not guilty. What the? But in October, a judge said he couldn't do that. He was supposed to be sentenced to 25 years to life in December, but it's been postponed again thanks to the continuing pandemic. Oh, my God. That is so terrible. She's 17. Her life was ahead of her. Yeah. I mean, apparently she was hoping to become a psychologist. What a waste. Thanks for writing in with this one, Gina. If you have a story you want to share, please email us at hello at truecrimerecaps.com or send us a message on Instagram or Facebook. Thanks for spending some time with us today. You can watch us tape this podcast every Wednesday on YouTube at True Crime Recaps or listen and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. If you like getting twice the crime in half the time, please help us spread the word with a five-star review. It only takes a second, but it means the world to us. Take care.